Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a True Crime Digest. I know it's been a minute. It's been since February that we've done one, but there haven't been a ton of updates for some of the cases. And also, we were following the Lori Vallow case. So that's why. For the cases that we've talked about before, there aren't a lot of updates, but there are some. And we think that there's enough to review what's going on. And then because we have some time, we want to introduce a new case that we've been following as well. And then because there wasn't a ton of updates, we thought that we could just add the updates for the Vallow Daybell cases as well, because there's some things going on. It's been a minute and we try not to go too far in between our True Crime Digest updates, because then the cases that do have updates, there's so many updates. Like we're going to talk a good bit about Daniel Robinson, because there was nothing then a lot of stuff that came out, I feel like. Yeah. Also, we'll probably say it again at the end, but if there's any cases that you are following that you'd like for us to add to our True Crime Digest updates, you can message us on any social media or emails or on our website. There's a section where you can suggest a case that we follow. Mm -hmm. Yep. And some of these are cases that people have told us to follow. So Mm -hmm. the first one we're going to talk about is Daniel Robinson. And this one's a local one for me. And let's recap it a little bit, but he disappeared not terribly far from me. He was last seen leaving a job site in the area of Buckeye, Arizona on June 23rd of 2021. He was driving his 2017 blue grayish Jeep Renegade, which was later found by a rancher about two and a half miles from the work site in a remote part of the desert. There have been so many searches of the desert led by Daniel's father, David, but unfortunately, they haven't found anything with Daniel. What they have found, though, are bones and body parts of other people, but not Daniel, which is already alarming that there's so much going on in that desert area. Agreed. And they're being very thorough, obviously, because they're coming up with other people, but nothing with Daniel. So as of when we're recording this, we're recording on this 22nd. Tomorrow is the two-year anniversary of when Daniel disappeared, and they are holding a remote vigil being organized by David. And if you do want any details on the vigil or anything going on, it's on his website. It's pleasehelpfinddaniel.com. And we'll also put the link for that in our show notes as well. So the Buckeye Police Department has released some new information relating to Daniel's case. And that includes location data on Daniel's phone that shows that his phone was at the crash site at 10.05 a.m. the day that Daniel went missing. And that after an examination of Daniel's iPad, personal and work computers, as well as his cell phone, they didn't find any new information that would aid law enforcement in locating Daniel, which I find a little bit surprising if you are thinking that there was like foul play involved, that there would be nothing. I mean, unless it was just a, you know, wrong place, wrong time type thing, you know, like it was random or an accident of some sort. That's true. I would also say that... If they are thinking that a person who's involved is watching the case, they might not be telling the truth. It doesn't make sense to say, oh, we are considering someone if they're still investigating them. That's true. Police have also provided two briefings to the FBI, and that is something that Daniel's father, David, had requested that they do. He'd been asking for a while, actually, for the FBI to be involved. So I'm glad that they are briefing the FBI. Someone also reported seeing Daniel near the Hasiapa River bottom on the day that he went missing. However, digital evidence from Daniel's Jeep and his electronic devices don't corroborate this sighting. Interesting. And why would you lie about that? Yeah, that's a big one. And so Daniel's father, David, as we mentioned a moment ago, he did an interview with the Pascal Show. And during the interview, he shared some interesting details. One was that when the investigator went into Daniel's apartment, he took pictures of what it looked like in there and that his bedroom appeared to be ransacked and that it looked as though someone was looking for something. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that something may have been or had to do with. Also, David says that forensics shared that someone was on Daniel's computer after he disappeared, looking at search history on his computer. And David knows more, but cannot elaborate. So even that, by the way... (laughs) 
if you're saying that there's nothing on someone's electronic device to aid law enforcement, that is something that aids law enforcement. Knowing that somebody was on his computer is literally something that aids law enforcement. Yeah, I agree. And then what makes me really sad is that David's private investigator is helping him find all of this. Not Buckeye PD, not, I think he lived in Tempe, so not, not that police department. None of the officials in Arizona are helping find like these little details. It's his private investigator. Incredibly disappointing. Yeah. So we have talked about the woman who Daniel was talking to before. And the way that his feelings for her have been characterized in the past is that he was in love with her or perhaps infatuated with her. And David said that Daniel had never told him that he was in love and that that was incorrect information. Yeah, that's fair because they had a very like tight relationship. So he's like, my son would tell me. And the thing is, is some people, I guess, have speculated that he might have just run away from his family to like to become a monk or like do something crazy. And David's like, had he wanted to do anything, if he would have been like, hey, dad, I want to go be a monk now, he would have been like, that's strange, but how do I help you? Like, how do I help you get to your goal? He's like, that's the relationship that we had together, not secrets, because all of us are just so open with each other. So he's like, if he was like in love with a girl, he would have told me. So, okay. I would not tell my parents about somebody who I was in the introductory stage of seeing, but when it comes to like situations where they're like, maybe they just ran off and started a new life. That's not really a necessary thing for people to do anymore, right? I feel like that is a perhaps generational bias that you might think that, you know, 20 years ago, to live a life where you felt authentic, perhaps you would need to run away and cut off your family. Yeah. But I think that that is not the norm anymore. And that as a society in America, for the most part, I think that people are more loving of the people in their lives and who their authentic self is. It's definitely got better. Yes. We still have work to do, but it's gotten better. Yes. Well, and certainly, say Daniel did run off to start this new life. Once he saw that his dad had like a website basically moved to Arizona, hired a private investigator, was scouring the desert for him, one would assume that a reasonably decent person would show back up. Or at least send something to go, hey, I am fine, or call him. I'd be like, I'm fine, please stop. Yes, because there's a point when the world would find David stopping acceptable, you know? So like, it's not as the people would go, why'd you stop, right? Two years in the desert. Yeah. And a lot of money and time. Yeah. He has other children, too. And he's doing this day after day. He's, he even said in the interview, it made me really sad that his phone's always on. Yeah. How do you get a moment of sleep? Yes. Like a single moment. So I know I really do not think that he ran away. And no, that's silly. I like find it frustrating when someone says that because the mentality of they're just a runaway. Like, get fucked. No one's running away anymore. I mean, people are running away. But that should not be the assumption. The first thing. When a person goes missing in a weird way. Yes. But so back to our updates. In this interview, David also said that Daniel's job had him looking at two well projects that are connected to each other. And this next part I find really interesting because, okay, one, I'm not in Arizona, so I don't know about this. But two, it just didn't occur to me that this was part of like what you did before developing an area. So as a scientist, part of Daniel's job was that he needed to determine if the groundwaters could produce a 100 years of water to sustain the community. Fair. And communities cannot be built if there's not enough water. And there were talks that there was a smart community that was being built by millionaires and that that's the project he was on. And so Daniel needed to test the wells to determine whether there was a water to sustain these communities for 100 years. And the report that determined that there was not enough water was hidden after it was completed. And it's been released now by Arizona's new governor. But again, that's a new release, new-ish release. Yes. So what David had determined is that Daniel's findings may have prevented a smart city from being built because of the lack of water. Yeah, or at least like held it back or, you know, put some blockages in the way of it. Yeah, made it more difficult. Woof. You've made powerful people angry and you're in a place where you are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So that's wild that if he, you know, had a part in finding if it's sustainable, like not saying it's all on him. But if he had some of the data to reflect that maybe it's not a good thing and that perhaps some of the reports were being hidden for a while 
And this is all what David said. But from what I understand, some of the communities in Buckeye were like, hey, can we see what's going on with these wells? And they weren't getting their answers for a while. It's certainly an interesting wrinkle. Yeah. Another interesting thing that he mentioned is that he has now possession of Daniel's cell phone and that he's trying to determine what some of the pictures on his phone mean. And what Daniel had taken pictures of were some of the well logs. So like the data. And David's like, I don't know what this means. I'm not a geologist, but he's trying to find like an expert to help him determine what these logs are or why Daniel even took those photos. Interesting. And he did say, like, Daniel makes good choices, and he would call someone out if something was wrong. And he's like, I don't know if that worked against him in this. I'd be interested in someone who knows how to read these, reviewing them and hearing their opinions on that. And I'm sure that that is something that we're going to hear as a result of this. I'm sure someone with a comparable specialty could look at this and go, hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think if I was this person's father, that would make me worry. It would. It would. And. David's private investigator is also, I guess, telling him that Daniel's car was probably staged and that it doesn't really seem like it rolled down that ravine. And I think we talked about that before where we're like, it's kind of strange, like the way it was found, when it was found. Yeah. But what he had said is based on the terrain of the area, it doesn't seem like the information given from the vehicle is how fast it was going because it wasn't physically possible. And he was saying that they did some like tests to see if they could do it. And they're like, we don't see how in that particular area you could go that fast because there's like brush and rocks and cactus and things like that. And if anyone's been to Arizona, if you look at the desert, it's not something that you can easily drive, especially in like a regular car. Or I know he had a renegade, but there's still a lot going on. I would also say also as a person who is used to being out in that terrain, it's not like he's me, who's never been there and is like, let's see how fast this Jeep can go. He's a person who is out in these spaces yes. and seeing like what the terrain looks like. And it's like, this is how you safely drive in this area. It also might be why that was the kind of car he had. You know what I mean? So it was something that could handle driving in the area and not die. But this part I find alarming. And what we have on our outline next, I feel like is the thing that really makes me skeptical of how the jeep was found yeah and we have a whole episode on daniel robinson so if you want to go back from the beginning that is available but real quick the rancher had said that the vehicle wasn't there two days prior to when he found it because it was like a cattle rancher and he was like if we had it would have been like substantially dirty and i would have seen it or my cows would have been on it and we've discussed that fully But he also says something that was strange that David brought up is that he was told not to alert the media or the family about the find. And David was like, it was very strange that they didn't call me the day that they found the vehicle. They called me the next morning, which that seems very strange. I actually don't think that's that strange. If you're trying to really assess a crime scene, you don't want to tell the family first, right? Because you don't want them showing up and staring at things. I think that one of the things that we don't think about so much when we talk about the justice system and the investigative system that happens before the justice system is that the state's interest isn't always the victim's interest. It's in like preventing what happened to that person from happening again. So say somebody was tried for Daniel's death. If he is dead, it's not Daniel against that person. It's the state against that person, right? Yeah. So in that same way, they are not victim first. So they're not victims family first. Does that make sense? I feel like that doesn't seem too weird to me, but I can see how it would be like, I've been so a part of this case. I've earned the right. I feel like he has earned the right, but I can see why they might not is what I'm saying. I feel like after they assessed and did what they needed to do. They said something like, we didn't want to interrupt your sleep. And he's like, you think I'm sleeping? That's a weird response to say that. It is. It's very weird. And then also just one last thing about his vehicle is it was fairly clean. So if it had been sitting there for a little while, it would have been dusty or dirty. And it really wasn't as dirty as it should have been, which is weird. Because out here, like I could get my car washed and I'm not even in the desert. I'm desert adjacent, as Lindsay has seen. And the next day, it's dusty again, especially if we drive anywhere. So like if he had been driving and it's been sitting in the literal desert, it should have been a little dirtier. Another thing that David brought up that I hadn't heard before is that he's received death threats and he has contacted the FBI personally as well. And the FBI was unable to help him. 
unless Buckeye invited them in. And he thought that was a little strange because he's like, this is about me receiving death threats and stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to do with like Daniel's case. I mean, it does. But at the same time, like they're two separate people. And as of now, like it it doesn't seem like the FBI has stepped in. Lindsay said they're reviewing pieces of it from what it seems, but it doesn't seem like they've taken over. So as a point, if those death threats are happening in Buckeye County, that is Buckeye County jurisdiction until the FBI is called in. So whether it's Daniel's case or those death threats, they still have to be invited in like a vampire. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. And we don't get to pick the law enforcement agency that investigates. Yeah. For better or for worse, just fact of it. He said at one point, too, because the interview is like two and a half hours long. It's a long interview. And he goes into the disappearance, what he's been doing, private investigator, like every piece of the case. And then he's adding what he's seeing personally as well. And he said at one point when he was trying to get more help, they were like, well, you're doing such a good job. I remember that and us being infuriated. I don't know if it was when we were doing a case update or when we were talking about Daniel in the full episode where we discussed that, where we were like, well, that's fucking ridiculous. Regardless of who you are, unless you are a person who works in the police department and it's your literal job to do so, you should not be shirking that responsibility. Yeah. Woof. It was sad. So all of this, it seems like David has been figuring out a lot of information by himself or with the help of his private investigator. And yeah, he is doing a fantastic job. He's keeping it in the media. He's doing interviews still. He is updating like his Twitter and the website is being updated quite frequently. But again, if you want to help, everything's on the website. He's been posting a thing that he's working on right now is a mail-in protest. And all the details are at pleasehelpfinddaniel.com. And something that Lindsay and I have talked about is if you do help with the search or mail-in protest or whatever you can do, let us know. Send us something, a screenshot or what you've done for Daniel's father, David, and we'll happily send you some stickers as a thank you for helping in this. Yeah, yeah. My heart just breaks for him so much because not having your kid is terrible. Having to do the heavy lifting is even fucking worse. Yeah, yeah. He reminds me of Tim Miller. He's like, yeah, anything for my kid. And I just I love what he's doing and how he's helping others, too. Like he's looking for Daniel, but he's also getting the word out for other missing people. So he's just a fantastic human being. I feel like once you know this kind of pain, how do you not help someone who's gone through something similar? Yeah. I think that it's like a terrible bonding experience. You know, it is. So the next few cases, there are full length episodes on them. So we're not going to do too much of a recap. But the next case that we're going to talk about is the case against Anthony Robinson. And he's been dubbed the shopping cart killer. And so he is being charged for several counts of murder. But it's thought that his victims are Cheyenne Brown, Sonia Champ, Stephanie Harrison, Eileen Elizabeth Redman, also known as Beth, and Tanita Smith, who's also known as Nita. Right now, where his case is, is that his counsel has requested a stay because he has not yet received a mental health evaluation. And so I hope that they get that done so the case can proceed and justice can be served for these women because what he did was pretty fucking terrible. Awful. Yeah. Again, this next case also has a full-length episode. It's actually our first episode, and it's the Velisca Axe Murders. And June 10th was the 111th anniversary of the Unsolved Murders. That's crazy. Right? Do you think that they'll ever be solved? Unfortunately, I do not. I think because of the way that everything was handled from the moment that they found out that the family and the two friends were dead, they let, what, the whole town run around the house? Trompling through. Yeah. Destroying evidence, any evidence that could have been. And then whoever did it, unfortunately, any evidence that they had is gone. Yeah. Right? Unless unless eventually we find some secret wall with a confession note. I truly don't know. Yeah. And even that I feel like I would be suspect of that it hadn't been found sooner. But like I guess if they like demolished the home one day and you found something that was like clearly in a place that the average person couldn't get to. Maybe. Yeah. Well, in 2024, we'll have some interesting Velisca Axe Murder House news. Yes. But more on that next year. Yes, we're excited. And so our next case that I want to talk about is the West Memphis Three. Again, there's a full-length episode on it, but it's also part of our Satanic's Panic series, which is one of my favorite series that we've done. I was so proud of the work that we did in that. If you haven't listened to it, I would highly suggest it. 
When people talk about the West Memphis Three, they're talking about the conviction of Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly for the 1993 murders of three very young boys. And they were Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. Eventually, Damien, Jason, and Jesse were released from prison, but it was done with an Alford plea, which means that they were not exonerated. And Damien, Jason, and Jesse's connection to Christopher, Michael, and Stevie was not that they were relatives. They lived in the same neighborhood, but it's kind of more that these gruesome murders took all of their childhoods away. Yeah. Because while Christopher, Michael, and Stevie were all very, very young boys, Jesse, Jason, and Damien were teenagers. So, kids. Yeah. So, one of the things that I think is incredibly kind is that they've continued to fight for justice for these boys. Because, I mean, they could have left prison and been like, we're out, we're done, that's what matters, right? But rather than doing that, they are still trying to find out what happened to these kids. And so in that, in 2022, Damien Eccles' counsel filed a motion to have evidence tested, and the Crichton County Circuit Court denied that motion. Eccles' counsel filed an appeal, and the state moved to have that appeal dismissed, but the court dismissed that motion to dismiss. A lot of dismissing. Which is good news. A lot of dismissing there. But what that means is that Damien's appeal will continue. Yes. And we're very happy about that. We are. We're very happy that we're one step closer, perhaps. Hopefully. In finding out what happened to these three boys. Because it was pretty fucking bad. Mm -hmm. And that person should not be out in the world. No. No. And yeah, it is sad that they gave up a lot of their lives. And now they're the ones pushing to figure this out. Yeah. Sad all around. Yeah. It defined their lives. And a lot of people still think that they're guilty, which is baffling to me. So the next update is with Lake Lanier. And it's kind of an update, kind of just what's going on there. There is an upcoming movie that's coming out on September 16th about Lake Lanier. And it's simply called Lanier. I am very excited about this movie. Right? I know. I'm like, oh, I can't wait for September for a number of reasons. But it's supposed to be a horror movie or a thriller. And it's inspired by the events that happened in 1912 in Oscarville, Georgia, which we have a whole episode about. And if you want details about this next part, please listen to it because it is just terrible what happened in every way. But we discussed the murder of May Crow in that episode and its horrific events that it had on the Black community in the area. And again, it's just, it's so sad. According to the filmmakers of this movie, though, they say that the approach is not a gimmick because I was really worried that they were going to be like, it's just gonna be like jump scares and making, I don't know, I don't want to say light because the horror movie is not really light, but like making light of what happened and making it more of just now it's spooky. And it's like, no spectacle. Yeah. Like they're making it a spectacle where like, thank you. It takes away from the historical importance and meaning and sorry to interrupt you, but I'm like, yeah, sometimes I think horror movies do that. And it's like, oh, fuck, please don't do that. Please do not do that. Yes. And I'm hoping that they can do this respectfully. Exactly. That's what I was worried about. But they said, no, but it's not a gimmick. What they're trying to do is draw attention to the purpose. So they're really interested to see how the movie goes, as am I. And in September, we'll see. Hopefully, it's, you know, more thriller. Like they said, it's like horror thriller. But in a way, like what happened is horror. It's terrible. Yeah, it really is. So as for what's going on at the lake currently, there have been some headlines already this summer. One being Margaritaville is no longer allowing people to swim in the lake due to safety concerns. They have their own little like beach area from what I understand. And now it's just blocked off. Like you can go lay out, but you can't get in the water. We talked a lot about just the general safety concerns of Lake Lanier. So I feel like this is just good sense, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. You're staying at our place. Please don't drown. Yeah. Because there's nothing we can do to help you in that lake. It's just horrible. So another tangent happened while we were trying to come back from a tangent. If you want to hear it, stay past the credits. It's a good one. There always is. There always is. It's a good one. What an edit. (laughs) What an edit this will be. But Lake Lanier. Another headline this summer is a woman got attacked by another woman with a baseball-sized rock earlier this month. And from what I understand, they have not found the woman who attacked the other woman yet. Hmm. Shit's going down in this lake. I don't want to go to there. It brings out the violence. It really does. Uh, Also, very sad. There's already been several drownings this summer. Heartbreaking. And authorities are really, really urging people to please wear life jackets at all times on the lake. Whether you can swim, can't swim, or somewhere where it's not deep, they're saying please wear them because the ledges are very random. And there was um 
one video I found where some of the lake had gone down a little bit. And one of the, I think it was a cop, he was like, look at this. And it's like, you're on a very, very shallow part if the lake was filled. And then randomly, it just dives down. And he's like, if you're not ready for that, or you're a child, or if you have been drinking a little bit, and you're not ready, you're going to fall very deep. What if you hit your head on something? What if you're not ready and you drown? Even if you're just a person, because weighting yourself up sounds easy to do, especially if you're used to doing it in a place like a pool or an ocean beach, right? Where the depth goes out, you know what I mean? Like where it's gradual. Yeah. But like lakes are different. And when Amanda and I went on vacation, we were on this lazy river thing and Amanda <laughs> learned that I can't stay in an inner tube and I learned that she is rude about me not being able to stay in an inner tube and <laughs> I just, just like living by that life vest the entire time and like your arms get tired pretty quick. It's just bobbing. It doesn't look fashionable, but living is better. It is. So... My advice to anyone thinking about going to Lake Lanier is don't <laughs> go to a pool instead. Those are fantastic. Or just stay on the, the shore. The shore. I mean, that just sounds awful being hot and like near water, but not wanting to get into the water, you know? Life jackets if you have to go in, but I'm sure there's a community pool that is fabulous near you. I love that. It's sad. It's so sad how many people drown there. Yeah. And it's also, it's accidental stuff. I don't think it's situations where people are being malicious. I don't think it's situations where you would even look and think that person was being overtly careless. I think it's just fucking terrible situations and circumstances. And it's like, oh no, like I'm a strong swimmer or I've got lots of endurance and Lake Lanier is a fucking asshole. Yeah. And it's built on sadness. Yeah. Yeah. So our next case update is Lori Vallow. And last time we discussed the Lori Vallow case, we ended with her being found joyfully guilty of all charges. Stoked. So after her trial was over on May 17th, Nate Eaton interviewed one of the jurors, Saul Hernandez, on his experience. And Saul shared what it was like serving on that jury and some of his thoughts on the case. One of the things Saul said was, you questioned, had some things been done differently early on, would any of us be here? When Nate followed up for an example, he straight up said they didn't consider this during the deliberation because the instructions and how it was clear to the jurors that Arizona evidence and testimony is only for demonstrative purposes and they are respectful of the rules. And I love that, right? I love hearing that our justice system at fucking work doing the right fucking thing, mm-hmm. right? That they were like, no, we can acknowledge the fact that like, There could have been a different result, but we don't need to go down there because what's important is correct justice for this. Right. Also, if he were to admit that, that could probably be talked about in appeals unsuccessfully, but still. He was so clear. He's like, because what happens next? We'll we'll talk about Mm -hmm. it in a second. But he was just like, I was respectful. He served on a jury before. He's like, I knew how this is going to go. It was long days. We wanted to do this right and consider everything we should and not consider what we're not supposed to. He was very thorough when he answered this next part. I appreciate that so much because Tylee, JJ, and Tammy deserved nothing less than that. Yes. So after being removed from the case, once everything was done, Saul felt that the police department in Phoenix could have followed up on some red flags earlier, which of fucking course we agree. We've talked about that time and time again that yes, yes, Lori and her charm got her out of a lot of things and there would have been a different result if people weren't fooled by her. Yes. So Nate Eaton followed up with, do you mean after Charles was shot? And Saul said, before and after. And Nate said, yeah, you're right. Before he was shot, that body cam. And Saul nods. And if you're forgetting what that part is, we're talking about when Charles comes back to town and he's talking about what's going on and she's locked him out of the house. She's moved his truck. And he's like, something is going on. She's acting off. And he is clearly distressed. And they're just really not taking him seriously. And so keep this in mind for the next part. So Lori's attorney motioned for a new trial, which, I mean, we kind of assume that Archibald would do that, right? Like, it makes sense. It's part of the process. We talked about it even in our updates that we should expect that there's going to be appeals. So Lori's attorney motioned for a new trial. And his reasoning for that was that he said that juror number eight, who was interviewed by Nate Eaton, knew about evidence that wasn't presented during trial, and that he, in that interview, said that the jury instructions were confusing, which is highly fucking bizarre, because Saul seemed crystal clear on what the jury instructions were. And 
after this, he even went so far as doing another interview to specify that he didn't know details about Arizona. And then he looked it up after, but not during the case. And I feel like anybody will be looking it up after. Oh, yeah. In the motion for a new trial, Archibald also included that the court misdirected the jury in a matter of law as it related to the jury instruction on conspiracy. And basically that in the indictment filed by the grand jury, it made it sound like at least five people were involved with the conspiracy. But in the trial, it was two people. Interesting. And the final reason was the amended indictment. And as a reminder, the indictment was amended literally at the last fucking second. So right before the state rested, they amended the fucking indictment. And it was a weird time to do it. Yeah, we even said, we're like, this is weird. This is going to come up again. Yeah. And fortunately, the motion for the new trial was denied and everything will continue as planned. I would be heavily surprised if there weren't more appeals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's probably going to come. And that's, you know, that's part of it, right? Even after they've run out of appeals as a matter of mechanism, they'll probably file a habeas corpus petition. I don't think she's going anywhere. I don't either. But now let's talk about what's coming. So she will be sentenced on Monday, July 31st, and the victims will be able to give their impact statements, which we brought up and we're like, we're so sad to hear these, but they're so important. Yeah. Lori also will have the opportunity to speak if she decides to do so. Now, Boyce ruled only immediate family members will be able to speak during the sentencing. Oh. And this was kind of a bummer. Who will be allowed to speak are... Oh, I hate this. Colby, Summer, and Kay. When we say immediate family members, chances are your head is harkening back to in the actual case when only some people could actually be in the courtroom and Larry was excluded, right? Oh, yeah. I'm so sad about that. Me too. So there are some other people who filed victims' rights forms and they will not be allowed to speak. And those people are Brandon Boudreaux, which that's really sad because he really got this going, right? Like he helped with a lot of it. He did. Rex Connor, who's Lori's uncle, Vicki Hoban, who's Lori's aunt, and then of course our favorite, Larry. And so Larry will not be able to speak, but I really, really think Kay is going to do a fantastic job. Yeah. And we all have Larry in our mind. When we think of JJ, the first thing you think about is Pawpaw. Oh, Pawpaw. I know. That interview. I can't even like look at pictures from that day because I tear up. Also, I mean, what I think of is after Larry and Kay found out and that sound that Kay made, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it hurts my heart. I do think that Kay has been such a fantastic and amazing and awe-inspiring just voice for both JJ and Tylee that I think that her words will be heard. I would also say, you know, Larry might not be able to get up on that stand and speak, but he can be there. And when you see him, how do you not? Yes. You know, and also, I don't know what the rules are for Kay reading something that somebody else wrote. (laughs) That's what I thought of, too. It was like, Larry can totally help. I hope that that is something that they allow. They may or may not because it is somebody else talking. But she can also say, Larry and I felt X, Y, Z. This is what we did. And also, you know, you can grieve someone on your own. But it is a particular type of pain to watch your spouse grieve as well. Yes. And not be able to take that pain. So, like, not only is she grieving JJ and Tylee, she's also watching her husband be in this horrific fucking pain and not able to do anything. And also, I mean, and and he, her, right? So being able to say, this is what I experienced 360. Yeah. I think that it'll be compelling. I think so, too. And I think I think Summer's really going to do a good job, too, based off of that call with Lori. Knowing her emotion in that, I think she has a lot of feelings. Colby, we haven't heard a lot from, but we heard him dig into his mom during his call, too. So I really think these three are going to do a good job overall. Also, he didn't look at his mother during the trial, and I have a feeling he's going to. Yes. Yes. And so I would imagine he's got some powerful things to say as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it will be good for their healing to be able to look her in the eye and say these things. Yeah, he lost his whole family because of her. Yeah. So the court will be live streaming the hearing. We're all waiting to see how that goes. Lastly, the human thumb, Chad Daybell, has a trial date. It's currently scheduled a little earlier than we had thought, and it's going to be on April 1st of 2024. They really love April. They do. They really do. So defense attorneys and the prosecutors must turn over all discovery, 
by February 1st. And then what will happen is a pre-trial conference that'll be held later in February, I believe on February 22nd. And we'll keep you updated because things still can change. It's a little ways away. But obviously, we're following this because this has been our lives for a couple years now. Yeah, I do not foresee us covering Chad's trial with the same rigor that we covered Laurie's because honestly, I don't have it fucking in me to do that again. That was so much work. But we're also likely not going to find out as much new information. Yeah, the new information, obviously, we're going to be all over. But I mean, when we hear from new people, that's going to be very interesting. But a lot of it will be repetitive in a way. I also think we're going to have there's going to be more of a defense because there'll be actual time to prepare and sift through all that discovery. Yes. So our last case of the day is our new case, and it's the disappearance and mysterious death of Dr. John Forsyth. This case started as a missing persons case for Dr. Forsyth, but unfortunately, it didn't have a good ending because his body was later found. This case is still kind of unfolding because there's a lot of unknowns. So as we learn more, we'll share them in our True Crime Digest updates. If a lot happens, we'll have one sooner than four months from now. Yes, yes. And also generally, on any case that we've already talked about, if something big happens, we'll often post about it on our social media. Because if you don't know, Amanda and I research, record, and then release about a week later. Minimum. Unless there's like something where we're like, it needs to go out in two days. Then we don't sleep. We don't <laughs> sleep and we uh, <laughs> lovingly craft good episodes where you don't hear us fuck up and <laughs> we put our silliness at the end of the episode. But the point of that, check out our social media if you don't already. You'll find more case updates there. So on May 21st of 2023, 49-year-old Dr. John Forsyth didn't show up for his 7 p.m. shift at Mercy Castle's ER clinic in Missouri. And he was last heard from that morning, and his shift would have been in the evening. It was incredibly unlike him, and he was reported missing. I would also say, like, of the jobs where you expect someone to just, like, not show up and not call, I think that ER doctor is not one of them. No. Because it might mean that somebody else is, like, working an insanely fucking long shift because you don't want no one there, right? Yes, right. So... His brother, Richard Forsyth, said he had never missed a day of work in his life. Not only is it abnormal for that profession, but also for Dr. Forsyth himself. Yes. So Cassville Police Department began sharing his missing persons flyer the following morning, May 22nd. His vehicle, a black infinity, was found abandoned and unlocked at the Cassville Aquatic Center less than a mile away from the hospital. It was unlocked and it had his personal belongings like his keys, his wallet, his cell phones and his laptop. We also read that some of his cell phones may have been found in his RV, which was also unlocked. And we'll talk about his RV in a little bit, but interesting. And also cell phones. I would imagine that he had a, a doctor cell phone and his own personal cell phone. Yes. Just as a note, because I feel like when I hear cell phones, plural, I immediately think nefarious things, right? I'm like, why would you have two phones? I can barely keep track of one, but I would imagine one was a work cell. Yes. And one of his cell phones that was possibly in the car was a Google Pixel 6 Pro, and it was badly cracked. It was seen a few days earlier by someone who knew him without that damage. Interesting. Which, like, anything can happen, but that's still a little odd. I feel like when you see a movie where someone is taken or they're like, they're going to track us, the first thing they do is, like, destroy the phone. And that's kind of where my head goes, right? Because, like, why else would it be that damaged? So the area that the car was found in, according to his brother Richard, was an area that a car normally wouldn't go to. And it was pretty hidden. We said that it was found in the Castle Aquatic Center, but it hadn't been open yet for the year. And it wasn't parked in a place that was very visible. It was like more hidden in that lot, yeah. which makes it a little bit even more strange because it's not like he would have been there because it wasn't open. Richard also said that the police told him that the car was partially hidden by a gate and a pile of wood. Yeah, I saw some photos of it. It looks like almost an area where they there might be work eventually or they're getting ready for something. And especially if this complex wasn't fully open yet, it was just an odd place. Like you wouldn't want to go in there. You'd be like, oh, what if, you know, it damaged my car or they're going to come to work in a couple hours and then I'll be in their way. That type of vibe. Yeah, yeah. And so originally what was shared about Dr. Forsyth's disappearance is that he was texting his fiance around 7 a.m. after he finished his shift at the hospital. And in that kind of text conversation, he had texted her like, oh, I just got off. I'll see you soon, you know. And she responded, but he never responded to her response. Right. So security footage shows him walking towards his RV 
which was pretty normal because he would often sleep there between his shifts and be close for his patients, which I think makes actually a lot of sense. If you were going to park a type of vehicle in a hospital parking lot, not a plane, it would be something you could sleep in. I like that you knew exactly where the fuck I was going. Uh, it would be something that you could sleep in. And also, yeah. like, I feel like in TV shows, you always see like the on-call rooms where it's like bunk beds and shit. I'm like, I could not sleep there. No, he had like a very nice RV. And that, especially when he had patients that he's been treating for a while, from what I understand, he would go out there to sleep. So he's right there. Smart. Or if he had like an upcoming shift, like maybe his shift ended pretty late and he had a shift soon, he would go there to sleep. So he's right there. Well, yeah. And also that way you're spending time sleeping, not traveling. Yes. Because I also like if I'm driving, when I get home, I am awake for an hour at least. My brain can't shut off for at least an hour. So maybe he was the same. Also, we mentioned his phones earlier were found in his abandoned car, but some sources do say that some were found in his RV that they were charging and that the cell phone that specifically had sent that text to his fiance, that was in the RV. He also may have had additional phones in there as well. Investigators found a total of five phones between his vehicles. Okay, that sounds like a lot of phones. It's a lot of phones, but I think what you were kind of saying, like his work phones, and it could be, I don't know exactly his doctor phone, like if it was one or if it was like... He had some patients that were ER patients, some that weren't. And then he had a private phone. And then he also, we'll get to it in a little bit, he had another business as well. So I think he was just juggling a lot. But we could be wrong. There could be some other stuff going on. Yeah, interesting. That's still so many phones. So security footage shows him walking towards his RV. Then security footage shows his car at 7.12 a.m. pulling up into the aquatic park. So from here, there's a little bit of differing information. He either parks... And a short time later, a white SUV parks near his car. It leaves a few minutes later. And then 10 to 15 minutes after that, John gets out and walks away from his car. Or John got out of his car and got into someone else's. Either way, bizarre. Bizarre, yeah. After that footage, Dr. Forsyth was not seen again. The Aquatic Center has said that this footage is motion activated and that the camera shoots a series of stills and is unreliable. I hate that. I fucking hate that. And that, by the way, reminds me of Kendrick Johnson's case, where it's unclear what happened leading up to his death. And yes, I just feel like it's a bad fucking like security camera measure. If you're going to have security cameras, just have it continue shooting. It makes more fucking sense. Well, and with how many people have cameras nowadays and like how advanced they are. And honestly, the price has dropped significantly where almost every household has something now. It's not even hard. Also, webcams exist now. Like, you could just have a webcam pointing out a fucking window that's just recording. Yeah, so easy now. Yeah. So the authorities and Dr. Forsyth's family have helped share the information. But in their search, it's not only been the authorities and his family, but they've also included search dogs as well as drones. There was a thorough search conducted around where he was last seen and a nine-mile radius around that park. Nine days after his disappearance, Dr. Forsythe's body was found. A kayaker found his body floating in Beaver Lake on May 30th at 4.43 p.m. And interestingly, it was located 25 miles away from the hospital in Arkansas. Authorities haven't released a lot of official details, but his brother Richard says that he had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head and insists that it is not suicide. Authorities are not sharing more information than that, Mm-mm. which is it's, it's sad that that's the conclusion to his disappearance. We were hoping he would have been found. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because it was so out of the norm for him to like stray away because he was so into his work. Like everything that I've seen on him is he was like a great doctor and a bunch of people are coming up now online and uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, but saying like how he's helped them or how he's helped one of their loved ones and they just had such high hopes that he would be found. It's really, really sad. So let's talk about what we know about him. We know that he went by a couple different names, J.R. Forsyth and Johnny Forsyth, or, you know, Dr. Forsyth. And patients, coworkers, his family, everyone that has spoken about him all speak very highly of him. His family made a Facebook page when he was missing and really sad they had to change it to a memorial page. But on that page, lots of people have come to share their story with him. Going on it, you're like, oh, he just seemed like such a cool guy. You know, like he helped people. Yeah. He had six siblings. And from what I understand, more than 100 cousins. So like big family. 
that's a lot of fucking people. Yeah, he was very loved. As it is, I don't I don't have a hundred cousins. And Ben's like, okay, so these two are sisters. And I was like, yes. Like, he'll do it randomly. Like, we aren't even talking about family. And he's like, so-and-so and so-and-so. Yes. He's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't even keep track of family. That's too much. But everyone loved him. He had dual citizenship with Canada and the US. He was a loving father and he had eight kids. He had recently gotten his divorce finalized. And he was ordered to pay around 19000 a month in alimony and child support for four of his children. And they were aged 10 to 18. But I know he has some adult children, too. So that makes sense. The family court documents show that he didn't contest to this. He was like, okay. And his ex-wife and mother of seven of his children and him were on good terms, according to his brother. Like, they were still fine with each other. He was a good dad overall. He kept in contact with them and obviously helped them out. Their relationship with his ex-wife ended about two years ago. And kind of cute. They were high school sweethearts. And they had married and divorced twice. So, like, they had a relationship still, you know? Yeah. He had just gotten engaged to his fiance, Laura Barnett. And she is currently eight months pregnant with his eighth child. So he's going to be a dad again. That's heartbreaking, though. Mm -hmm. It makes me really sad. That's a hard thing to go through. With Laura, they worked together at the hospital. So like, now she can't get away from this either. She goes to work. It's where he should be. It made me really sad. Yeah. Now, the interesting part is he just proposed to her three days before disappearing. Oh. And when he disappeared... Most of his family and other children did not know he was engaged until after he was already missing. Hmm. That's a new engagement, though. Just a few days. Yeah. And especially if she was that far along, like, I could see how, like, you might want to pause because maybe you're going like, to announce the wedding after the baby or maybe you're going to get married before the baby and then have a big thing later. You know, like, I feel like it gets complicated when someone's very pregnant. And so that doesn't seem too suspicious to me. Yeah. Or maybe he wanted to sit down and tell like his other children, you know, like physically. Yeah. But Richard, the brother, said that his brother was very excited about his upcoming marriage and his new child. And he even had plane tickets to go see one of his daughters. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But Richard also mentioned that he said, I can't wait to introduce her to you. We're going to have a wonderful life together. We're all going to spend a lot of time together. And Richard said that he hadn't seen John this happy for a long time. So he was doing good. Yeah. And when Richard brought up that he was going to go visit one of his daughters, John's eldest daughter had just completed her Mormon mission in Provo, Utah. So he was going to see her. And John's 23-year-old son, JR, in one of the interviews also mentioned that his dad seemed very excited to come out and they were all looking forward to seeing him and all being together. So my guess is like, he was going to go out there soon. He probably was going to announce it to them and then tell everyone else. But he wanted oh, yeah. to like, do it with them. You tell your kids first, I feel like. That feels reasonable and fair. Yeah. Yeah. So now here's where it gets a little strange, where I'm like, huh, what's going on? John's mother, Dixie Forsyth, said in an interview that John had mentioned over dinner a year ago that he had a feeling that he was not going to live very long. And then when she was like, what are you talking about? He said, oh, it's nothing. Oh. She tried later again to be like, but really, what do you mean? And he was just super dismissive. And she didn't know how to get more information out of him, which I get it. Like, if they don't want to talk to you, you can't make someone tell you. Also, in another interview, John's father, Robert, also mentioned that John had made some enemies and implied that there were people who didn't like what he was doing, but he refused to elaborate on what he meant. Hmm. Right. John's brother, Richard, also said, I think he crossed paths with some bad folks and he didn't tell me about them. So, like, what else is going on? Where he's not telling, but like hinting towards something bad to some of his family members, but then like won't tell them what's going on. So I feel like he has some sort of secret. Yeah. Also, that many phones, perhaps. Yeah. Richard also said that in February of 2022, Dr. Forsyth was allegedly kidnapped, but didn't report it and had only told one person that it had happened. So Richard and his brother had a mutual friend, and that's who... Dr. Forsyth told. That friend told police and Dr. Forsyth's family after he went missing about it. And so what this friend had said about what he was told by Dr. Forsyth was, it was cold, he was zip-tied, he was made to feel very unsafe, and taken on a car ride with some people to a bridge and was threatened. And he said that it was somehow related to cryptocurrency. Odd. Which I find interesting generally because I feel like one of the facets 
of cryptocurrency is that you can be relatively less well known in who you are. There are businesses where you have to be like, this is who I am. And like, for my art business, it doesn't work if I don't show that I'm an actual fucking human, right? But with cryptocurrency, people aren't like, show me the human behind this, you know? That's true. But so let's talk a little bit about that cryptocurrency element in this. Dr. Forsyth and Richard created a network mining venture called Onfo LLC in 2018. And when it began, their website said account holders could earn credits without putting up cash by referring others to the company. That sounds like multi-level marketing. It sure does. And a Forbes story in 2020 said, J.R. Forsyth, a Bitcoin millionaire. We do not understand cryptocurrency, and I'm not going to act like I understand it. But I've tried. I've tried so hard. Oh, yeah. I tried as well. Also tried to understand what an NFT is. And I can understand Mm -hmm. it, but I don't understand the purpose. So Paul Sibnick, the lead case manager for Cypherblade, an agency that investigates cyber crimes involving cryptocurrency. It's a long title. It is. So that the business model of Onfo resembles a pyramid scheme. Shocker. And that there is not a single legitimate cryptocurrency project that operates in this way. Richard has acknowledged this and said, the key difference is that we never sold anything and that it's probably cost them millions of dollars rather than turning a profit. That's odd to me. It seems very odd. The idea of cryptocurrency, I find fascinating because it's like you are creating something of value off of literally nothing. Mm-hmm. And right, like you're saying like this now exists and it is worth this much, which in theory, okay, let's just get rid of money altogether and have a bartering system. Like if we're just going to agree that it's all like fairy dust and magic, <laughs> let's just barter. Yeah. Well, and Dr. Forsyth also in um, that article, he was talking about how he had gotten into it early on because he's really into mathematics. And so like it made sense to him. Yeah. And he got onto it early and then he was able to use it to do other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. But I feel like now it's just all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Forsyth discussed in the Forbes article that he had mined Bitcoin and Litecoin very early on and held on to them and that the appreciation of the assets allowed him to invest in other cryptocurrency tech and ultimately led to him creating Onfo. Some are speculating that because of his business and his relation to crypto, perhaps that is why he was killed or ran into issues with unknown people. I mean, when you mess with people's money, especially in an investment realm, you're not just messing with someone's money, you're fucking with their future. And it creates, I think, a different level of desperation. So while you could get money based off of referring other people, I would imagine that there has to be some way of getting money by getting money. You know what I'm saying? So like, while some people did it for free, a lot of people probably didn't. Exactly. There's something. There's something there with it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the way that that company operates seems a little odd. Like even when we were talking about, we're like, huh, that's, that's a weird way to do it. I don't know. Who could know? Yeah. But agreed. Like we said, authorities are keeping a lot of information private. They're sharing very, very little. So a lot of the information that we have on this is actually coming from his brother. He's the one that's been like out there talking about it the most, at least that I could see. Interesting. The family said that there has been an autopsy performed and that the results won't be released for at least two months. And authorities have said, this is where I'm like, huh, authorities have said that there's no current danger to the public. Which, when I hear that, it means, like, it was a personal thing. We know who it is. We know who it is, or it was personal directed at that one person. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. So, that's interesting. Now, we definitely do not have enough information on this case to speculate a ton, but there are some things that we found a little odd. So, Richard has spoken to a number of different outlets about his brother, which... We see that all the time. We were just talking about Daniel Robinson's father, right? There's normally someone that's going to be from the family out there getting the press, getting people to care about their family member, unfortunately. Like, that's the world we live in. It's sad. But some of the things that he has said has conflicted at times. Like, when Lindsay was talking about the security footage, from what I could find in, like, older articles before they've been updated, it looks like he's the one that's told them about the footage and then had a different story. I don't think the footage has been released. So it's changed a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In addition, he said things like when they're asking about his brother in relation to his brother, he said, I'd say we love you and we miss you. If you're gone because of good reasons, we understand, but we want to see you soon. And in other interviews, he said, 
There are currently no facts to suggest foul play or abduction, but he's been missing is beyond bizarre. And what I think he meant is him being missing is beyond bizarre. It wasn't an audio file. It was written. But then in some interviews, he said things like that sometimes their shared passion for crypto got them into trouble online, including, quote, a hacker battle with some internet dude. Interesting. So they could have pissed some people off with this crypto stuff. He's also said, quote, we've made some enemies. That stood out to me because what Dr. Forsyth had told his parents at times too, and then what his brother's saying is they've made enemies with their business, right? But then in other times he's saying there's no facts or anything to suggest foul play or abduction. But then you're also saying that he's made enemies. So like in my head, thinking clearly without a loved one being missing, that's like the first thing I feel like I would say is, hey, there's some people that are not happy with us. But again, I don't have a family member missing. I understand how stressful and overwhelming it probably is. And so you're not thinking clearly right away. And sometimes you're like later on reflecting and going, oh, I probably should have said that or I probably should bring this up. I don't know. But it did seem a little strange. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so easy to say like, oh, as so-and-so related to this person, I would do X, Y, Z. But you never know until you're in it. Right. But I think that, for example, right in that first discussion where he's like, if you're good for a good reason, let us know you're fine, right? To me, it sounds like he's trying to protect whatever secrets he has. Maybe there's a secret and he's just not going to tell anybody, right? Versus later on when you're like, he's not gone for a good reason. And now I'm worried. It's like, I don't want to get them in trouble. I don't want to spill their secrets. I don't want to tell anybody their business. And then you're like, oh, no, wait, what if? Right. I could see that evolution. Not that I know. I mean, obviously, I don't know either way. But And I did see one, too. I think he said, like, I want to know if my family's safe. Like, am I safe? Is my family safe? Mm-hmm. But again, like the way that we're looking into it, it's saying this might be an isolated incident, at least looking at what authorities have shared. Yeah. Anyways, so they're not sharing a lot. As things come up, we will bring it up. The only thing that I've seen like straight from authorities is that they confirmed that the investigation is still active. And so we'll keep following it because I'm very curious what's going on. Yeah, this is an interesting case. I feel like there's enough variables where I'm confused, intrigued, heartbroken for this family as well. Like I think it's an interesting case, but also there's a lot of bizarre facts around it. It is mysterious. So with that, that's our new case that we're following. As Lindsay said before, if you have a case that you're interested in, something that's currently developing and you'd like us to follow, head to our website and click on episode ideas. You can fill a little thing out letting us know what you'd like. If you've been loving our show, check out our Patreon and our merch. Both links are available on truecreeps.com. We even put up one of our new shirts recently. Yeah, it's a good one. I love it. (laughs) Amanda drew it, by the way. I love it. (laughs) I did something. I helped. And it's the scariest thing ever. A little hint on what that is. (laughs) Lastly, we are so, so thankful for those that have left us reviews on iTunes. I know we got a few this month and every time we celebrate. So thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Yeah, we really do. If you haven't done one yet and you'd like to, head over to iTunes or your podcast app if you have an Apple phone and scroll to the bottom of our podcast page and it'll let you do it there. If you send us a screenshot with the review, we'll send you a sticker and your address, of course. We currently actually right now have some in the mail that should be received any day now. Yeah, I like it. Well, those are our updates. We love you. Yeah, we'll (laughs) we'll go through more True Crime Digest in the future. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. Have you heard that TikTok song? It's like, give me one margarita. No. This will have to go at the end. But it's like, what will happen if you have one margarita, two margaritas, three margaritas? I'll send it to you. It's a it's a delight. Maybe I have. You know what? I don't know if I had the song on, but I have seen like the 
the videos of like what one margarita will do, what two, and so on. And it's like, give me one margarita, I'll open my legs. Give me two margaritas. Yeah, I'll you know, I have. I have. Yes. <laughs> it's such, it's a fucking certified bop. This is also, again, <laughs> very unrelated. But yesterday, Ben was like making leftovers in a container. And <laughs> this is the song he was singing for, he made it up, but I literally sang it all night. We'll see if he's fine with me putting this in here. But it was. <laughs> Packing up my lunch for tomorrow. Packing up my lunch for my big boy job. He didn't sing it like that, but he did not <laughs> sing it like that. So again, packing my lunch for tomorrow. Packing my lunch for my big boy job. Like, <laughs> like unprompted. I walked into the kitchen to that and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever fucking heard. Packing my lunch for tomorrow. Packing my lunch for my big boy job. I love this so much. That that needs to be the next TikTok trend. It's been like an emotionally rough week, but that 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 helped a lot of things. No, I'm like no, I'm absolutely going to film him like packing his his lunch for tomorrow, packing his lunch for his big boy job and then <laughs> make him sing it. Because like Please. just gets packing my lunch for tomorrow. Packing my lunch for my big boy job. I don't know if your TikTok involves a lot of that like food prep and stuff oh, i yeah, want love everyone it. to be using that when they're making tiktoks about their food prep i'm on um we're gonna prep 17 meals in four minutes let's go food prep tiktok <laughs> are you on that one yes. i'm on i'm on i don't have time food prep tiktok which is a much different vibe from like coconut tiktok coffee <laughs> thing you know what i'm talking about where people are like lovingly and like sweetly and generously and like taking their time with this meal and putting love into it versus people who are like we are putting in the fucking work we're gonna make some dump crock pot meals let's fucking go yes yes i'm on that or there's this one i can't remember her name but she's hilarious she's like normally holding one of her kids and you hear like the kids in the background like arguing and playing and she's just throwing shit together she's like i don't measure because i don't got time for that and i don't want to wash the thing to measure so fuck it and she's just throwing shit together she's like it's great it turns out great every time are you talking about the person who in their one of their most recent videos they were like there's cauliflower because it's the same color as rice and her daughter's like i can hear you (laughs) i was like okay okay i also there's also one person who has maybe like 18 kids some of them are biological some are foster some are adopted and they're like watch me make like insert meals for like my family and they're like packing lunches making breakfasts cooking dinners i've seen some of those i don't know if it's the same one but yeah i'm amazed at it i'm like i can barely like get the executive drive to be like here is my own food let alone like (laughs) (laughs) look at this nutritious buffet i've made for my family one day one day i might get there amazed by it (laughs) um Okay, but Margaritaville. <laughs> that was a tangent. Making my lunch for tomorrow. Making my lunch for my big boy job. <laughs> <laughs> she can't even look at me now. Okay, I'm Lake sorry. Lake Lanier. Remember, the the fish the size of 12-year-old boys is what we're talking lipless about. Lipless slits as well. Not the boys. <laughs> the There's another creature that <laughs> has lipless slits and beady eyes. So it was that I thought that was who can know we have a lot of episodes no because there's catfish that are the size of 12 year old boys and there's the story of like the ugly fish boy <laughs> that's does it, did you forget lest you forget <laughs> you need to go back song. and listen to Lake Lanier I was waiting for the song Waking my lunch for tomorrow. No, Make the other one. Oh, fish heads, fish heads, roly poly fish heads, fish heads, fish heads. Eat them up, yum. That one? Yep, th- that one, that one, yep. To be fair, my husband also could not stay on his. <laughs> and they both were just bobbing down the river. We were happy. Well, her husband and I were happily in our, well, what would you call it? Raft float thing to tubes. I also want to just throw the adjective smug in there, but I'll say what I'll say. Mike and I were free. They had a hard time sitting. <gasps> no, it's the initial. If you don't get the initial sit, you're fucked. It is. I tried for a long time, and the people who were behind us were unhappy that I tried. 
they were like trying to have this romantic moment and i was like just like throwing my body around on this raft favorite part of that vacation to mexico is that moment of the people judging our part oh they were so judgmental like so it was unnecessary and i was like i see your eyes on me you think i don't you think i feel good about myself right now sir is a like you think i'm happy about me the only time I felt lower about myself was when I saw the picture of me after I jumped off that cliff, <laughs> and I looked like the penguin's ugly little sister with less hair, which now we have to post that photo again of me just looking like a vision. I don't understand how that's me in that photo. I don't know where my hair is. I don't know where my neck is. I've got a lot of questions, and it doesn't make me feel good. When I look at that photo, but I have to share it because I feel like it also brings me very funny joy. Anyway. But I have to talk you up a little bit. You were so brave jumping off that cliff. I was. I'm afraid of heights. Brave girl. Thanks. Thanks. But maybe not pretty. (laughs) (laughs) That one photo, but you looked gorgeous at dinner. So, (gasps) Do you remember those peach margaritas? Yes, I do. Fond times. Oh, it's also like the anniversary of that trip now. Oh, we should be that... going next week. <laughs> I mean, for that margarita with the passion fruit mojitos and the bread birds. Bread birds, queso bird. I think about queso bird all the time, every time. Cheesecake bird. <laughs> Except those nachos were gross. The nachos were gross, but sitting in a pool and eating nachos, queso bird, ten out of ten. It makes it a little bit better. You know what I mean? It really, really does. It, it does. better in the pool. <laughs> Everything is better in the pool. And also, <laughs> our turns on the golf cart, where you were either the pretty passenger princess or the mud goblin in the back. <laughs> so, like, one of the places we went, we were riding a golf cart, and our husbands drove. I hate to drive. Amanda hates to drive. So we were happy to not be driving this golf cart. And they were happy about driving this golf cart. But if you're sitting in the front seat, it's like a beautiful view. Everything's lovely. But it had been raining. So if you're sitting in the back, what you're getting is street juice and like mud all over you. And it, you're not feeling like you're having like a lovely like vacation. You feel like you're like a mud goblin. Yep. And you get better opportunities to take photos. Yes. But you're definitely not taking photos of yourself in that moment because you're oh, not no. feeling great. And honestly, when you get off, you're feeling a little gritty in the legs. But we did find a fantastic restaurant. We did. We did. Worth it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a fun oh, time. I liked that. I want to go there. Yeah. I want to go to there, as you said. I want to go to there. <laughs> so I want to rein this back in for just a minute. And this is sort of a little surprise for Lindsay. Unfortunately, we lost one of our own recently, and that is Lindsay's cat, Harry P. Winston. He was the sweetest boy on this planet, and I was so honored to be able to get to meet him just for a short time. But he was just incredible in every way. Lindsay took such good care of him, and because he has starred in several of our episodes, and to be honest, he's the best podcast host ever, I thought I would share some audio from some of our older episodes of when he really stole the show because he truly did. So here's a little bit of audio of Mr. Harry P. Winston. We miss you. So ASMR from Harry, his purr. 